What is the Bible and how do we faithfully read it? Eric Barreto is Associate Professor of New Testament at Princeton Theological Seminary. He wrote Exploring the Bible, a book that was co-authored with Michael Chan. You're listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. All right, Eric, thank you so much for talking with me today. Of course. Happy to be here. So tell me uh, why, what inspired this book? Why did it need to be written? Uh, this book kind of emerged out of necessity. Uh, Michael and I were teaching, so Michael Chan, he's an Old Testament scholar, were teaching a course at Luther Seminary. It was a new course. It was supposed to introduce the Bible to first-year seminary students over the whole year, one person in New Testament, one person in Old Testament. But the challenge was we were teaching it online to somewhere between 60 and 70 students. So we took the opportunity to start all over. So instead of replicating the intro classes that we had experienced, we thought, what is the most important thing that people heading into ministry need to know about the Bible? Where do we start? What are the key questions where we start? And the book kind of emerged from us designing the course and getting really excited about some of the questions we were asking and some of the kind of really introductory uh, directions that we were um, helping our students understand. So what would be an example of some of those questions that you felt were super important? Yeah. So, you know, in introductory courses in Bible, we often start with the synoptic problem, right? Why do we have these four Gospels? Or we start with the documentary hypothesis. Where did these early texts in the Hebrew Scriptures come from? And we were wondering, what if we imagine that from the start? These are really important things to learn, but why is it important for ministers to think about the fact that we have four Gospels instead of one? Um, And we came to realize that we could talk about this stuff about around history quite a bit, but we also wanted to think about theology. So we wanted to think, what kind of book is the Bible? What kind of book is it that would have these diverse accounts embedded within it? A commitment to these diverse voices right from the very first. Uh, So instead of kind of teasing apart these historical questions, we want to kind of have a theological conversation that brought these parts uh, together into one. So that was one thing that Early on, we figured out, yeah, let's let's teach it this way. And then we got running from there. Yeah. So unlike some of the podcast episodes we do that are yeah. super uh, focused on like a tiny part of scripture uh-huh. or a tiny area, this is actually really broad. Yes. Where we're thinking yeah. about scripture really generally. Right. Uh, which I think is exciting. Um, one of the things you talk about in the very first chapter uh, is a claim that we never read the Bible by ourselves. Right, right, so what yeah. do you mean by that? Yeah. And why is that an important thing to think about? Yeah, and I think I, we repeat it a couple times in the book because I think that is one of the main claims of the book. Um, I, I think we, um, in, in, in our culture, in our Western culture, we tend to assume that the reading of the Bible is this individual thing, something that we do by ourselves. And I remember even in the tradition where I was nurtured growing up in the church tradition, uh, that quiet time with Scripture was so important. And yes, we want to affirm that that moment can be important, but that even in that quiet time, even if it's four o'clock in the morning and no one else is in the world in the world is awake, or at least it feels like that sacred moment. That's right. (laughs) If you can find it, even if that happens, you are not by yourself. You are surrounded by this cloud of witnesses, by a church that has formed you, a tradition that has formed you, a culture that has formed you. And we want to say that, yes, there are biases we carry that we want to uh, reform and reshape. But also that all the stuff that we bring with us and all these voices and all these traditions are actually um, add to the richness of our reading of the scriptures. They're not meant to be disposed. So when we say we're not reading the Bible by ourselves, it means we're carrying all the stuff with us. Not only that, but I think it also means that we actually need the help of other people to read the Bible in all its fullness. So we need experts who think about Greek and we think about Hebrew and think about history and all that stuff. 
But I think also we need ordinary, everyday people who just have experienced the world differently than we have, who will be able to gain insight that we could not on our own. So reading the Bible, I think, means reaching out across difference and learning how God speaks in other communities, especially communities that are not our own. So in some ways, you're asking us to reflect on who we are right. when we come to Scripture, this question of identity. Yes. Um, and awareness of our own identity. Yeah. Like nobody's a blank slate. Yeah. But then also a communal identity. That's right. And the identity of other communities yeah. unlike us. That reading Scripture is always an activity of identity formation so that when we read the Bible, we're not just gathering data or <laughs> trivia so that we can win trivia at some bar night something, but it is forming my identity as an individual, but more importantly, my identity as part of a larger community of worshipers, uh, a larger community of followers of Jesus. Um, and that uh, in that community, we learn who God is in learning who we are. We learn who we are in learning who God is. Yeah. Is there a particular point um, in your own identity narrative, so to speak, where you kind of bumped into scripture and that was, uh, you had an aha moment mm. of like, oh, wow, who I am is fundamentally um, shaping the way that I can see this see the, the piece scripture. of scripture. Yeah, I, I, you know, um, I've been thinking, I've been teaching this regularly in, in churches that, so I was born in Puerto Rico uh, and we moved from, when I was nine years old, we moved from Puerto Rico to Slidell, Louisiana, which if people know these two places know, they're not exactly the same. So there's a lot of cultural shock for us. I'm an adolescent. All I want to do is to fit in. Um, and when you're a teenager, you're pretty good at fitting in. I mean, it's one of these skills. And my friends eventually would embrace me and say, we don't even think of you as Puerto Rican. You're one of us. And my little adolescent heart would just leap because I just wanted to be embraced. I wanted to belong. Um, and now looking back, I realized that when, in an attempt to embrace me, people were also denying a critical part of who I was. So all that coming together means that when I go, for example, to read the story of Pentecost, I read that story really differently than when I was taught. So instead of Pentecost being this um, defeat of difference, where we're kind of finally breaking down the walls and we're all basically speaking the same language, actually it's a scene where people are speaking all kinds of languages, where people still can't understand what other people are, are hearing and, and speaking, but that you hear the gospel proclaimed in that language that most will touch your heart. So those experiences, I think, have, have shaped me in profound ways um, and I hope can be instructive for others who haven't had that same set of experiences. But it's also a reminder that my experience is limited. It's particular. And I need someone else to help me see things, that, help me see the things I can't see in the scriptures yeah. as well. Um, so one of the questions is around authorship. So you mentioned that the ancient world had very different ideas of authorship than we do today. Mm -hmm. So can you talk about that and how that influences the way that we read and right. interpret scripture? Um, I think, for example, of the Gospels, and none of them identify the author, right? What's the thing that I keep telling my kids when they show me their homework? You forgot one thing. is to put your name at the top. Like we have this sense that we own our words and our intellectual property, all great stuff. Those are just not assumptions that are shared in antiquity, at least partly, I've, I think, because of what the gospel writers think they're doing. They're not writing a book to publish. They're not trying to write a bestseller. Instead, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, whoever they were, whatever their names were, were writing for communities that they knew and cared for and loved very deeply. Communities that already knew the stories of Jesus, that were not surprised when Jesus died at the end of the story. 
but were hearing these old stories that they'd heard before in a new way because they needed to hear these stories in a new way because the world had changed. Uh, Their anxieties were different. Their joys were different than when they first became followers of Jesus. So in those cases, it's less, you know, it, it, it mattered a little less who wrote them because everybody knew who this person was, right? They're writing for these communities. And once they start spreading, then it becomes a little more important to identify the sources of these. Where did they come from? Um, it's, it, it, it's, it's a matter of what does it look like to, to own a piece of literature? And that's where we have really different ideas about that. Um, we might wonder, too, what does it mean to own uh, an interpretation of Scripture? What does it mean to hold on, to kind of create something new, to, a new perspective on this? And maybe our more individualistic culture miss, misses that even readings that seem really new, probably somebody's noticed it before. But more importantly, again, we don't create this stuff out of whole cloth. We've been shaped by these communities. And we, even if we encounter this new reading of Scripture, it's because of the, the gift of a community that has invested in us. All right. So you've brought up the Gospels a couple times yeah. and the fact that there are four of them Yes, um, that have varying accounts. So for some people, that's really problematic. Yeah. But what does that quote-unquote problem help us understand about Scripture as a whole? Right. Um, I, I was teaching this weekend, and, and we I watched again with the group uh, that TED Talk by the author um, Chimimanda Adichie. Uh, it's called The Danger of a Single Story. You can find it in TED Talks. Uh, but I, I think there is something about the danger of a single story, of boiling down the complexity uh, of someone's life into one set of stories. Uh, and the church refused to do that. And we still refuse to do that, even as, as we're reading these four different narratives as four distinct stories about who Jesus was. Mm-hmm. Uh, which means that in the end, we can't boil it down to one story because we always have these four which means that the reading of Scripture is always a wrestling. It's always a struggle. It's always uh, these stories meeting us in new and fresh ways um, as we you know, rotate through the lectionary cycle or we read these texts over and over mm-hmm. again. All right. So what does it mean then, since we do have these different stories, yeah. what does it mean to say that the Bible is true? Ah, well, you gotta ask, These are hard questions. Yeah. I'm going to uh, boil it down in 25 know, tw- minutes. Tw- tw- <laughs> 25 minutes to solve the biggest problems in Scripture. Yeah. Um, what does it mean, the Bible, to be true? I think that it's, um, it's less about kind of plain, mere fact. It's not about figuring out where Jesus was at any particular moment. Right. So can we he... draw like a cl- right. clear chronology, chronology of A, B, C, D? Yeah. yeah. Um, I think the, the, the truth of Scripture is, is what happens when our reading of Scripture especially alongside neighbors, diverse neighbors, when we hear God's voice speaking through these texts. Um, Which means that, you know, unless we're hearing God's auditory voice, what we're hearing is each other's stories, each other's interpretations. We're hearing this testimony from long, long ago, heard in new contexts. So the truth of Scripture is what happens when communities are shaped by these diverse and interesting stories. The truth is when the Holy Spirit shows up. The truth is when, um, you know, Luke's Jesus talks about um, uh, wherever, basically wherever Jesus goes, uh, the oppressed go free, the poor hear the good news preached to them. That's the truth of the gospel. And that's not something you can put on a checklist to uh, say, okay, we've got the truth here. Or even something for us to contend through argument so much as we contend, which we really like, which really like, because you know we're in the academy, but that we contend over the truth of the gospel in lives lived 
among regular people. And it sounds like I've heard you say this a couple of times now that what you where you see this uh, taking shape in large part is in diverse perspectives being mm-hmm. brought to bear. Yeah. Um, one of the things I'm curious about is a lot of worshiping communities individually aren't very diverse. Right. Right. So are there ways that you've seen people kind of work toward that direction? Mm-hmm. If that mm-hmm. is an ideal that they right. share, yeah. like how does somebody kind of get there yeah. if they find themselves as mo- many people do right. in kind of homogenous settings? Right. right. There's that old saying about 10 o'clock Sunday morning being the most diverse hour in America. Um, the least diverse hour. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Thank you. Least diverse. I should yeah. say that again. <laughs> All right, students make me say the right thing. All right. There's this old saw about 10 o'clock on Sunday morning being the least diverse hour in America. Um, What's striking, of course, is that that may be the least diverse hour that most of us have during the week. But the rest of our lives, um, especially in recent days, are far more diverse. Our kids go to far more diverse schools than than I ever went to. Um, Our workplaces, I think, in many cases, are far more diverse than our everyday lives. Our neighborhoods, whether we live in a city, a suburb, or in a rural area, are far more diverse than they were 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. Um, so our lives are far more diverse. So I think we encounter this diversity in, in ways many, sometimes maybe we don't even notice because they seem too normal. They've, these changes have been gradual. But I think more than anything, I wonder if where we find this diversity, um, where we seek for it is in a yearning, um, in, a, in, in us realizing the need that we have as faithful people to not always be sitting and reading scripture with people to our left and to our right who look and think and act like us. The first step isn't um, kind of this PC sensibility that we should be diverse because that's the thing to do. Right. It's the thing we should want. So right. go get yourself some diversity. Right. Yeah. But instead that we imagine it's this thing that we need, this thing that we hope for, this thing that we desire, um, not as some sort of accomplishment, because we need it in order to discern who God is and who we are in God's eyes. Um, so that's not, you know, that's not a couple, here's a couple of easy steps for a more diverse church. But I wonder if what we need more more than anything is a theological and biblical imagination that's been reshaped um, that assumes from the very first that homogeneous spaces are not conducive to the kind of spirituality, the kind of hopefulness, um, the kind of hope that God has called us to. Yeah. And this idea that we can't be whole without each other. Right. So one of the other things that you lift up is that there are all these different types of um, writing in the Bible. Mm -hmm. So we have creation writing, we have wisdom literature, we have narrative. Um, And you talk about kind of reading those for what they are, Mm -hmm. right? Like Mm -hmm. apocalyptic literature should be read as apocalyptic. Right. And poetry should be read as poetry. Yeah. So can you unpack that a little bit? Yeah. It's something we do kind of without thinking all the time, every day, right? So you pick up a newspaper and you know how to read a newspaper differently than your kid's fairy tale or than a novel or the latest show on HBO, right? We we know at, at our gut what these things are for, what they're trying to do, what rules they set for us, what kind of knowledge they're trying to communicate. Uh, but because the Bible is in this you know, all these different kinds of texts are bound together in these big, leather-bound, gilded-edge books. And it has the heft of a canon. Yeah, it feels like this all has to speak in the same way. This all must be the same kind of thing. And because we treat it as Holy Scripture, which it is, then we think all the answers in the world must be here. 
But sometimes the questions we ask don't mass don't match the answers the Bible's trying to provide for us, or at least uh, the questions we ask don't lead us to the right other questions that the Bible is asking, leading us to ask. So how do we read, for example, narrative differently? So we've got the gospel stories. Um, the gospel authors could have just given us a list of rules that Jesus taught us. Um, it could have just been the Sermon on the Mount. It could have been uh, a, a top 10 list for how to put together a, a beautiful church or something like that. But instead, there's these stories. And stories don't turn into rules very easily, right? They, they actually resist being boiled down to that. Stories kind of have an excess of meaning. So um, to read the Gospels, for us to just say, I want to know what to do in this particular situation, that text is always going to resist us, resist giving us an easy answer for that. Uh, so we read these stories in a different way, in a way, instead of inspiring um, clear direction and clear guidance, instead, what if these stories are shaping our imaginations about what the world could be? Um, same thing with the poetic stuff, whether it's the Psalms or the Proverbs. That's Those are not good places to look for, for clear rules for everyday life. But they are these evocative and beautiful and image-filled writings uh, that work really differently. And I wonder if with poetry in particular, we have a hard time with because we are much more, I think in our culture, much more driven by prose. We want explanation mm-hmm. and we want narration. And then when poetry plays with language and says the same thing twice, but in a slightly different way, we sometimes don't know what to do with that. Yeah, We um, could maybe sing it. Yes. That'd be really healthy. Right? Yeah. We could, that'd be beautiful, right? So yeah. um, to, to imagine these different genres as different ways to form identity and to form the things that we know about God. Um, it's always a challenge before us, but I think yeah. we haven't quite figured it out. But right. it might help our artists too. It, it would, because I think um, if we only work that right side of the brain or left side, right side, I think. The one side, yeah. Yeah, um, we're going to miss the fullness of, the, of God's revelation. So I love this idea that stories kind of defy sometimes what we want out of right. a text. Yeah, I like yeah. want a rule or, um, or one interpretation. Something I can quote unquote yeah. apply to my life. Yes. You know? yeah, yeah. Um, so is there a particular story that's chased you around oh. in its ability to defy a clear meaning? Yeah. Um, I've been thinking a lot recently about Luke's parables and some of them drive me really crazy. There's the one where there's an unjust judge and there's a widow that comes and like demands something of, of him but because he's unjust, he won't he won't respond to her. But finally, he like gets frustrated and just wants her to go away. And I think, what what is that story? Why is it in my Bible? Because it doesn't make any sense. Are we supposed to make um, God really frustrated with right. us? And and the thing is, we can't, right? Because how in the world would we ever think God is like that unjust judge who finally gets frustrated with our prayers and just sends us away? So that's a story that we can't just allegorize. We can't just say, okay, this character is God, and we're the woman, or like it just resists that kind of compartment com, that, that kind of allegorizing that sense that this is that and this other thing is that other thing instead it just says live with the discomfort this story is um uh is is inciting in you live with the fact that you can't figure it out um that you won't ever get the the right interpretation for it but it's here and you have to deal with it uh so th- those those the parables in particular are, are, are these stories that that stay with us uh and the other one is uh the parables in luke chapter 15 the lost coin the lost sheep the lost son. Mm-hmm. I think especially as a, as a firstborn, I really relate to the end of the story when the older brother shows up and, and just throws a big pity party for himself over what's happened. In the prodigal story? Yeah, in the prodigal yeah. story. Um, and, and then to think, 
it's harder for me to read that story as the younger son. Mm-hmm. Um, I can think about it sometimes as a father having children now. But then, of course, who's missing from that story? We never hear from mom. Like, where, where is she in the story? It, it's a story that um, he, we hear it. You know, it starts, there was a father who had two sons. And that's an old, old story in the scriptures. We hear that story over and over again. And then we get into the details and we get to the narrative. And it just escapes um, any sort of easy conclusion about what the story's about. It fights us all the way down. So I'm curious about this question of reading scripture together, particularly with people who differ from us. Mm. And I'm curious if you've seen a way in which this has happened, maybe it's in the classroom or in a church, um, that's been really transformative in the lives of the people who read scripture together. That's a really good question. You know, I, for some reason, the example that came to mind um, was more around social media. So I think... Is there a redeeming story about social media? I think so. I think there's right. a number. So one of the pop, I just remember this experience of, of, of hearing Michael Brown's name for the first time. So Michael Brown was this young man who was uh, killed by police in Ferguson, Missouri. I first heard about Michael Brown from African-American friends and thinkers who I followed on Twitter. And if I remember right, it was on a Saturday, I think this happened. And I went to church on Sunday in a predominantly white church and Michael Brown's name was never spoken there and nobody seemed to mind um, because it just wasn't on people's radars, right? It hadn't made the national news. It hadn't made CNN yet. And I knew that there were communities um, different than the one where I was a part of that. This was a pressing question about who God is and what does justice look like and what is our, what is our identity as, as faithful followers of Jesus um, so what I learned there was that to have this wider set of communities helping me see the world differently meant that I was sitting there in worship and just wondering, what does that pain look like in a different community than the one I'm in? And what would it look like to read the lectionary text for that morning uh, in light of those set of experiences? What new thinking would emerge? Um, and not only if, if that happened to us, but if we just paid attention to the pain of our neighbors and we believed their testimony about the things that have happened in their communities and we didn't require video evidence of the things they've experienced. And I think that will transform our reading of the Bible. It will transform our faith. But it's incredibly hard work to do because um, our communities are not generally set up for us to be in community quite so intimately. Uh, And often we've been formed not to yearn for that intimacy uh, so much. Uh, so I think that's one example that comes to mind where, yeah, it is. <laughs> sometimes Twitter can be redeemable. Everyone's yeah. in a great while. Um, and at its best, these forms of social media can connect us. But of course, as we know too often, it just puts us into narrower and narrower silos. Yeah. But there's the potential for us when, I mean, framing it in terms of testimony is really mm-hmm. helpful yeah. because we can learn to share our stories in perhaps a vulnerable way. Yeah. Um, with hopefully people who can hear them. Yeah, that's right. In like a new and receptive and hopefully transformative sort of right. way. And that feels really... That's the greatest possibility. There's some hope there. Yeah. The, the other example I've been thinking... And I, I, I want to make sure I say this before the podcast is over. I was re- rereading parts of the book. Um, and there are already things I would write really differently in this book. Like what? Um, well, the, the one thing in particular I'm thinking of that I've been... I've been reading a lot of um, 
kind of uh, thinking about scripture and theology around the lens of disability. Um, and I used ableist language in a couple of the things I wrote. I talk about being paralyzed. I talk about being blind, not seeing certain things. Um, and it made me cringe to read my own words back, realizing that my words are could have this harmful effect that has nothing to do with my intent and everything to do with how these words are actually received. Um, so I think that by itself um, has made me rethink about my think differently about my own writing, but it's also made me think differently about the text, for example, in, in the Bible around healing and what that healing looks like. Um, and what do we do when people who we think need healing don't receive it, don't want it, don't think they need it, that we think someone needs healing, but that community thinks, no, this is who God has made us to be. Um, so that's one place where there's been a, a slippage for, for me um, to, to think differently about what wholeness looks like. But it also speaks to that journey right. of listening yes. and listening to the interpretation interpretation of Scripture with yeah. others. Right. I think that's right. And that um, I think our first instinct is to be defensive and say, well, I didn't mean that. And that's my first defense. But uh, but what if our first posture is to, to listen and to not think about intent, my intentions, but to think about the effect, my interpretation, my words, the things I've said, the things I've done, um, have 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 harmed other people. Yeah. Well, Eric, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thanks, Sherry. This is a lot of fun. You've been listening to The Distillery. I'm your host, Sherry Osting. Our research and production team members are Garrett Mistowski and Nee Otto Abrahams. If you like what you're hearing, let us know by rating us on iTunes, or better yet, share an episode with a friend. The Distillery is a production of Princeton Theological Seminary's Office of Continuing Education. You can find more great resources for Christian theology and ministry on The Thread at the URL thethread.ptsem.edu. Once again, that's thethread.ptsem.edu. Thanks for listening. <laughs>